podcast as always i'm your host emma and today we're going to be talking about the opening scene of quentin tarantino's inglorious bastards it is my favorite tarantino film i find that they're a little bit hit or miss me i really like it or really don't like django unchained inglorious bastards once upon a time in hollywood i really like those ones but like pulp fiction and kill bill just like weren't it for me like i can understand that they're good movies but they just weren't like my cup of tea so we're going to be talking about inglorious bastards and the probably i don't know what tarantino does to write such impactful villains but the villains in his movies are instruction manual for how to write good villains he writes incredible villains and i don't say that because i support what they do it's it's weird as a writer to talk about like (laughs) villains because you're like oh like this villain is so like good with the way they're written and you have a visual reaction to them but then you're like oh but i don't support these people like it's weird from them <laughs> like i but i hope you guys get what i'm saying if you're a writer you know villains can be very hard to write believable villains are very hard to write because you are balancing with you don't agree with them that's why they are the villain you're not supposed to agree with them no one in their right mind should agree with hans landa we should not like hans landa but as a character with the way he's written, I find him absolutely fascinating and I wish I could write villains. I'm constantly working towards writing villains that are as impactful in my story as Quentin Tarantino's villains. If you've seen a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hans Landa and Candy come to mind. Those villains create a visual reaction. You do not like them. And I think that is why they are such good characters. They evoke something in the audience that you're like, damn, I hate this person. And that's how we should feel for villains. So we're going to talk about the opening scene in Glorious Bastards. It's a very famous scene. If you've taken a screenwriting class or a directing class or a production class, you have probably analyzed the scene, broke it down. And even if you've just seen Inglorious Bastards, it is not a scene you are going to forget. It is a great way to open this film. And it is 17 pages long. That is almost unheard of in screenplays. We were told that screen, that um, scenes are supposed to be shorter because as an audience we tend not to be able to follow along long scenes. That's primarily because as kind of, not even as we've evolved, but as you notice, we have gained a shorter and shorter attention span and people blame that on TikTok or Vine. And I think there is something to also like, I think people call like fast food brains is that we want things instantly, the instant gratification. So if you were to open up a movie with a 17-minute scene, most people would laugh at your face and not even read past the first probably four minutes. But Tarantino does this and opens it boldly. And honestly, these 17 minutes could probably form as its own short film. And it's just the opening of a movie that continues. I think Tarantino really is one of those. Whether you like his movies or not, I think he definitely is someone that has impacted the movie industry and the screenwriting industry because he writes a lot of these movies and then he also directs them. I was told that he was a perfectionist and which could make or break it, but I definitely think this really helped him here because he even talked about how Hans Landa he feared was uncastable and he almost did not make the movie. And I think this is a lesson in it's not the right actor, it's the only actor that can do it. 
And at first, he had Leonardo DiCaprio on to do it, but then he did, and Leonardo DiCaprio ended up becoming a villain in the Django Unchained movie. He played Candy. He's the Southern Plantation owner, which is also just another villain character that even Quentin Tarantino has said that he has a visual reaction talking about Candy, and honestly, Candy is a fascinating character with how horrible he is. And it's a juxtaposition a little bit, but again, if you write characters, you know what I mean. It is a character that is fascinating in how he moves around the set, how he acts, how he does things, and he is so evil that you're like, I can't wait for this man to die. <laughs> and I think that's a lot of things with a lot of villains. And I'm sure you all know what I mean. Like even when we talk about like Patrick Bateman and other villains in the hate a character for their actions but still find them a fascinating character, especially if you are a writer, to try to write similar to them. And I think Hans is one of those characters, especially with the way Christoph Waltz plays him. And actually, Christoph won 27 major awards for this film. That's crazy. 27. And that's not like little ones. He won an Oscar for the Best Supporting Actor. And he won a ton of other awards for this role, not only in the United States, but internationally. It's absolutely amazing what this role did for him. And this was really like his huge breakout role, especially in the American film. He did a lot in Europe and he did a lot of theater in Europe and then smaller movies. And then when he tried for this, Quentin Tarantino refused to have anyone aside from Christoph Waltz do this. And he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in 2009. And then he actually won a second one in 2012 for Django Unchained, which is the next movie, which is the one where Leonardo DiCaprio plays Candy. And he was Dr. King Schultz in that film. And he um, plays also fantastic in that. I really like Christoph Waltz. I never really heard of him before really looking into Inglorious Bastards. And he's just a fascinating and beautiful actor. Just he is absolutely amazing. And in this movie, how he can switch between languages so fluently. Because I think he speaks the languages. And it is just... You have to watch this film just solely for Christoph Waltz. It's absolutely amazing. He is the only actor that could have played this role. So, let's get into this. Why is this scene so terrifying? It's for multiple reasons. Blonda is in complete control of everything. And he even makes it seem like the farmer is in control. He asks, oh, well, can I come in? Am I, am I interrupting anything? Different things like that. He even asks, he even says, oh, well, thank you for having me on your farm. Things like that. He makes it seem like the farmer is in control. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just stopping by. But no, he's there for a specific reason. And he comes with this wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. He walks in. And what's the scariest thing that really... At first, his uniform alone sends chills down your spine. But what really stuck out to me at the beginning is he walks in with such politeness. He takes his hat off, which is always a sign of respect. He, pol he politely introduces himself to the woman and he even compliments them. He shakes their hands. She he kisses their, their hands. It is almost as if he's a normal house guest. He walks in and he does all this stuff and you're like 
what does he, do they know each other because he's acting like he does he's smiling with them he chuckles a little bit he's complimenting the farmer's daughters and wives on how beautiful they are he says oh i would love a de delicious glass of your milk this is a dairy farm so he's acting as if he's trying to be friendly with them and that is scary when you think about that imagine someone who you know is dressed in this uniform that you know what it represents in Nazi-occupied France, so the Nazis have taken over France. He comes in this uniform. He had this reputation that we'll talk about in a little bit, and now he's in your house. But he does something like take off his hat, compliments your wife, compliments your daughter, compliments your farm. It's scary. It's unsettling. That is not what he is supposed to do. You expect him to walk in, bust down the door, I'm here, I'm in charge, but he doesn't. And that automatically sends this, oh God, what is happening? What what is, what is he trying to drag out? And that's only in the first like two minutes. You still got 15 more minutes of this scene. Hans is in control of everything. Everything he does, he's in control of. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to talk about what he does in this scene. But first, I'm going to talk about the bomb under the table. And not, not literally, figuratively. Alfred Hitchcock, who was a very famous filmmaker, says, and this is a direct quote from him, there's a distinct difference between suspense and surprise, yet many pictures continually confuse the two. I'll explain what I mean. We are now having an innocent little chat. Let's suppose that there's a bomb underneath the table between us. Nothing happened, and all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. The public is surprised, but prior to this surprise, it has seen an absolutely ordinary scene. There's no special consequences. Now, let's take a suspense situation. The bomb is underneath the table, and the public knows, probably because they have seen the Antichrist place it here. The public is aware the bomb is going to explode at 1 o'clock, and there's a clock in the in the decor. The public can see that it's a core of the one. The public can see that it's a core to one. In these conditions, the same conversation becomes fascinating because the public is participating in the scene. The audience is longing to warn the characters on the screen. You shouldn't be talking about such trivial matters. There's a bomb beneath you and is about to explode. In the first case, we have given the public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion. In the second one, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. The conclusion is whenever possible, the public must be informed, except when the surprise is a twist. That is, when the unsuspecting ending is in itself the highlight of the story. So you might be wondering, Emma, was the bomb under the table? Isn't Hans being a Nazi enough? It's not. There's a whole nother suspense to it. At first, we think it's just Pierre and his family, who is the dairy farmers, in danger. Because honestly, who wouldn't think they're in danger when Nazis are there? I think all of us would originally be like if someone of Hans Landa, not only ranking, he's a colonel, but with his reputation was to walk up to us, flashing his Nazi uniform in a country that the Nazis have just violently overtaken, and we're in the midst of a war, all of us would be nervous. We'd be like, oh, our family's in danger. But what Pierre also has weight on his shoulder is when... They're sitting at this table, drinking milk, having a smoke, chit-chatting about different things. They go on different tangents. The camera moves down, and we see that right under Hans Landa's boots, 
underneath the floorboards, there is a Jewish family. And that adds so much more to the scene. We now know his prime target. The target he has is finding Jewish families. And now we know that there is one literally right under him. And we don't know if he knows about it. And Pierre doesn't know if he knows about it. And we don't know what is going to happen. There is a whole other layer to this. Because we know if Londa finds out about this family, the family will either be killed or set to concentration camps. And we know that Pierre and his family will probably be punished too. Either death or by concentration camp. Because that is what happened when you were hiding Jews or anyone else that was targeted by the Nazis. This goes on probably another 15 minutes. And you are sitting there and you know what's under the table. Pierre knows what's under the table. And you are trying to figure out if Hans knows what is under the table. So the scene continues. And what we learn about Hans and Pierre a little bit back and forth is it looks like a normal interrogation in a way. Londa is asking Pierre, oh, well... I, my job is to round up all the Jewish families and one is not accounted for. And we've heard that they've been found on other farms and this and that. And Pierre's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. He gives him like, oh, well, yeah, I heard this family and this family, but they were caught in this and he's going on. And Pierre hopes Londa's done when these conversations end, but it does not. Londa continues it and he goes on all these little rants. He asks for another glass of milk. Kind of showing Pierre that he's not going anywhere. And I wanted to read this little part on where we kind of now also learn even more about Londa. Because not only is he a Nazi, but he is this nickname that makes him even scarier in the situation we are in. Because we know there is a Jewish family underneath the floorboards. So, Londa says, Monsieur Lepet, are you aware of the nickname the people of France have given me? Pierre responds, I have no interest in such things. Londa then says, but you are aware what they call me. Pierre, I'm aware. Londa, what are you aware of? He makes Pierre tell him his nickname, and Pierre responds, they call you the Jew Hunter. So now we know, not only is this man a Nazi, and not only has he been in charge of finding the Jewish families of France, but he has this nickname called the Jew Hunter, which now we know this man is known for finding and killing these Jewish people. And still right below his boots is a Jewish family, especially with children. And you think sometimes we don't award ourselves nicknames sometimes, but Hans Landa is proud of this nickname. And he then says, precisely, now I understand your trepidation in repeating it. Before he was assassinated, Heydrich apparently hated the good people of Prague bestowed on him. Actually, why he would hate the name Hangman is baffling to me. It would appear he did everything in his power to earn it, but I, on the other hand, love, and love is underlined in the script to do emphasis, my unofficial title precisely because, and because it's also underlined for more emphasis, I've earned it. So now we have a man that's very proud of this nickname he has. And again, this is only on page 11. 
the script I have printed out goes to page 17, so we have six more pages of trying to figure out if the man that is named the Jew Hunter knows about the family under the table. Hans Landa continues to be scarier throughout his time in this scene. He shifts from languages, and of course I don't speak French, so I cannot speak it, but in the movie, he, I think he speaks English, French, German, and Italian. There's that famous scene um, when he's talking to the bastards. I have to find that. It's, I will find that scene of him talking to the um, bastards and they're trying to talk Italian. He's like, one more time, one more time. And that in itself is power, is because when we are left in the dark, we are kind of helpless. I'm sure you've been in a situation where you didn't understand. Or say you're in a country and you don't understand the language. Whoever speaks that language instantly has power over you. And he shifts. He starts speaking French when he comes into the house. He greets himself in French. They start the conversation in French. He asks for milk in French. And then he says the line on page 6 after he sends out, after uh, Pierre sends out the woman to leave. However, I've been led to believe you speak English quite well. And Pierre says yes. And then uh, Londa responds, Well, it just so happens I do as well. This being your house, I ask your permission to switch to English for the remainder of the conversation. And Pierre responds, By all means. And then there is a, an action line that says now they speak English. And they speak English until 15, where Londa says, I'm going to switch back to French now. And I want you to follow my masquerade. Is that clear? He doesn't really give Pierre an option. You are going to speak the language I want you to speak. You're going to speak French when I want you to. You're going to speak English when I want you to. That is scary, especially when you think about does this Jewish family underneath the floorboard speak English? Because if they don't, they have no idea what is being said above them, but they can understand French. And Hans assumes that because when they're talking about his nickname, his what he's doing in France... Him asking Pierre about things, everything is in English, and then right before he kills the family, he starts speaking French again. He floats around the room like he owns it. He leans back in his chair. He moves around. You even, something as simple as, the family offers him wine, but he says, no, I want milk. And that's what you think is normal. They're on a dairy farm. A request for milk is probably not of the ordinary. He not only is making the family serve him, but he rejects their original offer. He said, oh, well, dude, get him a glass of wine. No, no, I want milk. He can't say no to him. So they give him milk. And also that is a um, foreshadowing also for the strudel scene that's later in the film where he's actually sitting across from Shoshana. And they have strudel. And he goes, oh, I forgot to ask for cream because uh, Jewish people eat kosher. And there are certain rules. I don't know all the rules about kosher, but I know there are... Um, Animals have to be killed a certain way, or they... It's actually all in the book, I think, of Leviticus, also says it. But they... I think the animal needs to be killed a certain way. There, I don't think there can be blood, and I could be 100% wrong with this. But then I know there's also... Um, certain animal products can't be mixed together, because I know... Um, I once was at a friend's house, and they couldn't put, like, mayonnaise on the table when they were having a ham sandwich... So I don't know all the rules, but 
One thing is, is Shoshana cannot have cream on her strudel. Those ingredients cannot mix the, the cream or the dairy with whatever is in the strudel and forces her to wait. And you're thinking, oh, does he know? Like, does he know this is the Shoshana? He, does he know her name? Does he know this? Does he know that? It's very another tension-filled scene. And she puts the strudel with the cream in her mouth and then the scene continues and when Lanza actually leaves, she spits it back out into her um, napkin, the strudel with the cream, so she actually does not eat it. But you're actually watching this scene with Lanza being like, no, 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 try with cream, try with cream, it's better with cream. And they're continuing this conversation as she has this in her mouth, trying not to swallow it because it is against her religion. So that's actually the milk kind of, I also think foreshadows that a little bit. Is he's so obsessed with this milk and then Larry's so obsessed with his cream. Like there's the dairy products in two of the most tension-filled scenes he has with Shoshana because she's under the floorboards and then she's across the table with him in the next scene. He also forces Pierre to call him uh, by his nickname. You can tell Pierre's like, oh, well, I've heard what people say. I don't like rumors. I don't like this. And then he forces him to call him by that nickname. It is made to believe that Londa knows the family's under the floorboard and whether he knows from the get-go or f as he learns about it, I truly believe he knows because everything is so intentional and he is a detective. At the end of the day, that's what uh, Tarantino always says. He is like a Sherlock Holmes level of detection work. He's a detective and his job is to find these people. And so I truly believe he knows that this family's under the floorboard from the beginning and this 17 minutes is just him playing around with Pierre to break him because we see Pierre absolutely become broken in this and we will talk about uh, that moment with poor Pierre when he realizes the jig is up and he cannot protect these people and you can see it in his face and you actually see um, some tears go and I always feel very bad for Pierre. You can tell he clearly wants to help people and he, he cannot. He is in a situation where there is no way out and he is like a rat caught in the trap he, he cannot get out and at the end when they switch back to French he calls his soldiers in the floorboards he says oh goodbye Pierre and then they ship the floorboards killing the family and only Shoshana survives and she's covered in dust and like dirt from underneath the floorboards and the blood of her family and you see she's gets out of like um like a, a grate or like a vent I don't know uh, like this little door and she goes sprinting across the field. And the last thing Hans says as she's running away, he holds up his gun as if to shoot her, and then he does not. And he yells out, Arriba, Shoshana, which is quite different than when he says adieu to Pierre. There are two ways to say goodbye in French. Adieu means a forever goodbye it's often used in funerals or when you know you're not going to see someone again it clearly shows i don't know if pierre is killed we never find out or if hans is just never going to come back to see pierre again almost giving him this sense of whatever happens you're just never going to see me again now whether that means pierre is killed or pierre is freed we do not know but arivar which i'm probably pronouncing wrong means goodbye when you're expected to see someone again so he's telling Shoshana, you can run away, but we'll find you again. And then we later have this scene with her with the strudel, and you're just thinking, does he know this is her? Because she knows who he is.
She knows very well who he is. But does he know who she is? And Christoph Waltz plays as if uh, it could be both ways. But I, I think he does know it's her. And I think he enjoys the mind game. Because there's a scene where Hans can identify the bodies of dead German so soldiers. Just because he's seen them before. So I think he does know it is Shoshana in that scene. Let me find the scene of him talking to the bastards in Italian. Because I think... It's just funny, I don't want to... Well, it's not... It's really funny with Londa around, but... <laughs> the other actors speaking Italian is funny. Grazie. Corlomi? Lo pronuncio correttamente? Si, corretto. Corlomi? Per cortesia, me lo ripeti ancora. Gorlami. Scusi, con me? Gorlami. So that is a, um, a scene they're talking with this um, actress and she is introducing the bastards that are undercover and Hans is like, oh, this actress, she's, she's beautiful, she's a gem of our culture, I love her acting, she, he ends up actually killing her because he knows she was somewhere she was not supposed to be and um, <laughs> Brad Pitt's character, just a gorlami. And he keeps saying, and Hans is like, I'm sorry, come again? Am, am I pronouncing your name right? He's just like, Gorlami. I just, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film because it's just so fun. It's like, he knows. He knows these people do not speak Italian. And he knows that this woman was involved in something and he's going to kill her. And <laughs> these three are like, yeah, I speak Italian. And they're like, Margaretti. And they're doing like the classic like Italian hand gestures and Londa knows they don't speak Italian and he probably knows who they are and he's just going along. He's like, I'm sorry, one more time, one more time. So I think that's just another scene that also shows how scary Londa is because he he's always in control of the situation and he keeps pushing it. He hasn't, what, pronounces Gorlami like, what, five times? He's just like, one more time, one more time. So the moments I want to talk about now is... Right the moment where he confesses to Pierre that he knows. I'm sorry, I'm moving my script. Um, the moment where he confesses to Pierre that he knows there are Jews under the floorboard. And he constantly goes on these big rants, many rants, and tangents. And he says, at the end of one of them, So, Monsieur Lapette, let me propose a question. In this time of war, what is your number one duty? Is it to fight the last German in the name of France to your last breath? Or is it to harass the occupying army to the best of your ability? Or is it to protect the poor, unfortunate victims of the warfare who cannot protect themselves? Or is your number one priority in this time of bloodshed to protect those very beautiful women who constitute your family? So he pretty much tells him right there, are you going to fight me, harass me, help these poor people that are under your floorboards. Well, he doesn't say under your floorboards, but we can uh, allude to what he's talking about. Or are you going to protect the woman in your family? It is your job to protect them. And he really puts Pierre in this statement. 
and the line, the action line that says, he lets the last statement stand. And then he repeats the question. That was a question. He's your pair. In a time of war, what do you consider your number one duty? And he forces Pierre to say, to protect my family. And he responds, Mondo's response saying, now my job dictates that I must have my men enter your home and conduct a thorough search before I can officially cross your family's name off my list. And if there's any irregularities to be found, rest assured they will be. That is, unless you have something to tell me that will make the conduct of the search unnecessary. Pause. I might add also that any information that makes the performing of my duty easier will not be met with punishment. Actually, quite the contrary, it will be met with reward, and the reward will be your family will cease to be harassed in any way by the German military during the rest of our occupation in your country. So he pretty much is telling him. Now, whether he falls through with it or not, we don't know in this moment. Tell me what you know, and I will let the woman of your family survive his wife and his two daughters. Then there's this moment you see Londa's face shift from this smile as if like, oh, we're just two chums talking about current events to this serious face and you see this shift and it causes your heart to sink with him as he is speaking. So, you know, like, oh God, this is the moment. And Londa says, you are sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Pierre responds, yes. And in this scene, you actually see like the tears start to run down his cheek and he's choking out these words. But like, I feel so bad for Pierre in this moment. Like I, I really do this poor man thought he outsmarted this, this Nazi soldier and he thought he was going to get away and be able to protect everyone and he couldn't. And he's just absolutely helpless. And Londa says, you are sheltering them underneath your floorboards, aren't you? Pierre says, yes. Now, Londa knows where they are. He knows they're under a floorboard. But then he says, point out to me the area where they are hiding. So not only does he force Pierre to confess that they're underneath the floorboards, but now he's forcing him to point out where they are, specifically underneath the floorboards. It is a mind game to completely break Pierre. All of this is in English, and this Jewish family has no idea what is happening. Then Londa says, since I haven't heard any disturbance, I'm assuming, while they're listening, they do not speak English. Pierre says yes, indicating now we know Londa was right in his assumptions, and now we know why he switched to English. And Londa says, I'm going to switch back to French now, and I want you to follow my masquerade. Is that clear? Pierre says yes. Monsieur Lapierre in French. Although I don't speak French, so I'm saying it in English. Thank you for your milk and your hospitality. I believe our business here is done. And he starts to walk towards the door, but he lets the Jew, uh, he lets the Nazi soldiers in, and they start shooting at the floorboards. And this is when we know this family is found out. And then we have Shoshana running off, and it is a scene that is suspenseful heartbreaking, sad, angry. There's so much emotions that go through you when you're watching the scene. You are angry at Hans. You feel helpless with helping this Jewish family. We are in the same 
see it as peers. We can, there's nothing we can do right now to help these, these poor innocent people. We feel sympathy and empathy and hurt and sadness for not only the Jewish family, but for poor Pierre, who is just wanting to be a good person and to protect these people, especially being, you see Soshana and you see someone else. I don't know how many people are underneath the floorboards, but of the people we see, they look like uh, teenage girls. Of course, there there could be more people, but the crawl space under the floorboards is very small, so we don't see a whole lot. It's almost as if he's trying to protect his second set of daughters. And he can't, no matter what he did, he could not. And a lot of people who are trying to protect people during this time in history faced the same situation that Pierre is in, and it's heartbreaking. And we have to tip our hats to Pierre, who tried to protect people, and who knows how long these uh, this Jewish family was underneath the, his, like in his house, staying with him. And he, he tried so hard, and I feel so bad for him that he couldn't complete what he wanted. And you see him cry, and you see him break down, and you see his house destroyed, and you see the women of his family completely scared for their lives. Pierre scared for his life. He's scared. They're all scared for the lives of the Jewish people underneath the floorboards. And then you see Shoshana running off covered in blood and mud and dirt. And we don't know what is going to happen next. It is probably one of the most impactful scenes, and I highly recommend you looking at it. You actually can look up um, just the opening scene. Um, there's a six-minute version, and then there's the full, like, 17-minute version. I recommend looking up the full 17-minute version. It is worth your time. And so Hans Lanta in this film is probably one of the driving reasons why I continue to watch this film constantly. He is an amazing... He's a character that is written in a way I have never seen that character written. He's a case study of writing impactful villains. And Christoph Waltz, of course, is fantastic when playing him. And I, I have to admit, there's not a lot of bad things to say about this movie. I think the cast is great. And I think what they do with this film is absolutely amazing. And it, it's, it is my favorite Tarantino film and one of my favorite films of all time. And I think it really also shows how to write. Because the villains, I think, in this movie really carry the movie. There is a couple scenes where you're like, damn, the villain is in charge of that scene. And I think this movie is also a study of, you can have a fantastic main crew. I mean, Brad Pitt plays um, Lieutenant Aldo Rain, who has the line that kind of went around TikTok a little bit. And he's like, we're doing one thing and one thing only, killing Nazis. That I'm sure if you haven't seen the movie, but you've been on TikTok, I think it was a couple months ago when viral uh, for that and that's one of the most famous lines of it I think this film like Brad Pitt is absolutely a fantastic actor although I haven't seen Don't Rolling Darlings yet and I heard that that's just a mess for everyone involved but I definitely think his supporting cast really carried the weight I mean Christoph Waltz carried the weight and then Maline Lorette played Shoshana and she was absolutely fantastic in it. She, the character of Shoshana is absolutely a fantastic character and is a character, I think, who really 
showed the dangers but also the heroism of this time period. She constantly was fighting and fighting to avenge her family and fighting to avenge her culture and her religion and fighting to survive and she does it and we watch her and she's a character where you're just rooting for her the entire time. And I think this film really is a case study on how to write characters, how to write character dynamics, how to write suspense, all this stuff. And also probably how to write a historical fiction film. Because many times we've seen a lot of remakings or retellings or documentaries of World War II, but I think Inglourious Bastards has a special spin on it. Because again, it's a Tarantino film, and you, if you've seen Tarantino films, you know what they're like. There's a very unique charm to them, style to them. I don't really know the word to describe it. But I think this film is one you should watch. You should check it out. It's one of my favorite films. It's a high-ranking film. I think IMDb, I think it's like a, like it, what's its IMDb rating? On, on IMDb, it's only an, an 8.3 out of 10. I thought it was higher. And Ron Tomatoes is 89, which I also thought was higher. But it grossed to $321.5 million. And I love how it says it is far from the true story. So it, it's a fiction film. It's historical fiction. I'd like a good historical fiction. But I think that's a good way to wrap up this episode. Talking about my love of this film and how I think anyone that... I think those rings are wrong. I think it should be higher. But I definitely recommend checking out. You can actually get the whole screenplay. I think it was on uh, Screen Rants. I printed it out. If you look up in Glorious Bastards or pretty much any film or tv show you want to add script at the end it will come up there's plenty of websites that have it because um, once the film is released and they tend to put them up for people to read you can read the whole script i only have the first 17 pages because i only need the first scene first 17 pages for this episode but yeah they you can find scripts if you want to read them sometimes it's fun because i'm a nerd and i'm a writing nerd and i like to have a screenplay in front of me and watch the films to see what they change what they cut out and everything because sometimes the script is very different than what is put on screen but i think that's the end of this episode on friday we'll talk about the goldfinch and whether or not we think we can make don Tarp books into films because the goldfinch kind of flopped the movie not the book the book won't be able to prize and then next week we're going to talk about crime and punishment and then i'm glad my mom died by Jeanette mccurdy so looking forward to that and then the week after that we have a special episode which i'm very excited to tell you all about but not yet I'm already starting to plan for season three because right now I'm really just finishing up last minute things. I have one and a half more books to read and then just kind of now just recording episodes because most of the scripts are already done until I think the last week. I think the last week I, I don't have anything done yet, but that's still got a few weeks for that. And so I'm already starting to plan for season three. If you have any recommendations or things you want or if you want to be on the show, please reach out to me. All my uh, all of my instagrams are in the description for these videos because i would love to have more of what you guys want i talk a lot about what i want but i want to have you guys see yourselves in the show and what you want so please if you have anything you want reach out to me and let me know this is all for this episode thank you always for the support and coming around but now it's my roommate's birthday today even though this episode's coming out i'm recording this the day before because I lost the audio for this one, so it's right now October 4th. It's my roommate's birthday, and so we're going out to celebrate. And thank you for stopping by, and as always, this has been me, Notes from the Library.